0: We're continuing on in the book of Ephesians, if that wasn't immediately apparent. Uh, In our series, Ephesians, Know the Love of Christ, and we're in this latter half of the book that is all gospel application. It's got Paul bringing the truth of the gospel that he has spoken to us so clearly and so powerfully in the first half to bear on our lives. Uh, Essentially, in this section, Paul is calling us to know the love of Christ in the gospel message As it applies to and transforms our lives knowing the love of Christ not just being a thing that happens up here but a thing that happens down here and out here we are changed by it and so we've been seeing again and again and again in different ways this basic principle working out that gospel transformation happens when we increasingly trust the truth about Jesus as it applies to every area of our lives and now, now, we're doing. A, there's a bit of a Zoom moment between last, last week's message and this week's message. Uh, we are Zooming in from the church that he's been speaking to as a whole to the household that he now begins to speak to. Uh, and actually, there's there's three sections of this kind of household teaching that Paul brings us. Uh, first, speaking to husbands and wives, then speaking to parents and children, and finally speaking to servants and masters. And that last section, I, I, I don't want to kill too much of it because that's not my passage, but that last section... Uh, really uh, most relevantly for us speaks to the workplace uh, and we might we might hear that and go well that's not in the home why is this the household stuff and I just wanted to chuck it out there that in Paul's day this was a home thing you know servants and masters and, and indeed your your very work was almost universally practiced from the home that was that was how that worked back then the exception I suppose being if you were a soldier uh, uh, but that last part anyway I'm not gonna kill it because Phil cookie is gonna preach us, f- preach it for us next Sunday um, But what Paul's going to do here now is going to show us how the gospel transforms the relationships of our homes. Uh, And it should go without saying, this is important. This is relevant for anyone. It's not just relevant for Matt and Jasmine over here. It's important for anyone who is married, who wants to be married, or who has kids or wants to have kids. But uh, if you're single and we do have a number of people who are in that category here, you might, um, you might kind of come to this and and kind of be like, well, you know, what's it got to do with me? What's the relevance for me here? You know, maybe you expect to get married one day, maybe you don't, but but you know, m- maybe you want to have kids one day, maybe you don't, but but you kind of look at this and you go, well, you know, this doesn't seem to speak to me very much. Um, and and I, would, I would, I wanted to start just by chucking you two quick answers to, well, what does this have to do with me? Uh, one of them is that this could be a part of your future. Um, you know, we have seen, there are people in our church who got married in, you know, the latter end of life even. It, you don't know. <laughs> you don't know whether this is going to be relevant to you until you're kind of lying on your deathbed and you go, and that's the end. That's, that's when you know. Um, but until then, you don't know. Uh, um, you know Sorry? this is going on our public recording on the internet mark um, and that was not part of my written sermon um, yeah and, and and on the side of that we have to say singleness is not a lesser life and a not a less admirable or less valued life in the gospel than marriage um, we're not going to hit that heavily today because it doesn't come out heavily in this passage But but when we get to 1 Corinthians later this year, Paul's going to tell us that singleness is a gift that he wishes we all could have, but some of us just aren't up to it. it's 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 a serious, it's a beautiful calling to walk the life of singleness and it allows opportunities that are not allowed in the married life. Second thing to the person who says, well, what's this got to do with me, is you are called by the Bible to be a maker of disciples. And the people you disciple are very often, in fact, universally going to walk a different path to you in some way, shape or form. And many of them in this way, shape or form. And it is important, especially with these most common of relationships, not just to know that we are you know, doing it right ourselves, but to know that we can speak into other people's lives in this. You, know, you might not be married, you might never be married, but you are definitely called to speak into marriage. And so this is important teaching for us. In fact, this flows on quite directly from Ephesians 4.15, where Paul said, speaking the truth in love, that is speaking the truths about Jesus, the gospel truth, we are to grow up in every way into Christ, who is the head. So you are called to be someone who builds up others into Christ's likeness in their marriages, in their parenting, and and, and we into your singleness. Uh, through gospel application, which is what Paul's going to do here. He's going to apply the gospel to our lives. And the broad theme then of these passages, these, these sections, is established right at the beginning of this passage. Uh, in fact, really in the final verse of what we looked at last week, we didn't even read this today, uh, where Paul called us to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Every relationship Paul's going to address is an auth- a relationship of authority and of submission that's that's how he's going to address these things and that of course is an astoundingly unpopular concept in our day and age you may have run across this so if we if we want to be biblically faithful people uh, reflecting the gospel in our un gospel formed uh, community area world then we need to sit up and listen here. And we need to be aware that there's a very good chance that some of what we run into here in the Bible is gonna rub us the wrong way. And we need to be rec- ready to recognize that actually that's, that's more an issue with me than with the Bible. If we really hold that God's word is good and perfect, then we have to go, you know, when this run, rubs me the wrong way, there's something in me that I need to address. And if we're, if we're going to get this, then we also need to understand that submission, submission, and this is kind of opening thoughts for all of these relationships, submission does not make anyone inferior to anyone else. Biblically. In fact, one thing that the Bible is utterly clear on is the equality of all those who are saved in Christ. In their salvation status, particularly. When, when Peter calls husbands to honour their wives over in 1 Peter. If you've been with us a while here as a church, you might remember this. Um, you know, He gives a reason for that. He says, they are your fellow heirs. We have radical equality in the kingdom of God, but that does not exclude differing roles. For instance, those who lead the church, which Paul's not going to address here, but those who lead the church have a different role to those who are members of the church, right? We we know that. They wouldn't be leading the church if they did the same thing as everyone else all the time. (coughs) Yet you would never say that an elder is of greater value than a member of a church, right? Um, Depending on the elder, you might say less. No, no, that completely defeats the purpose of everything I just said. Ignore that bit. Um... this can be a hard concept for us to grasp, that submission doesn't make a person inferior. Uh, the, the easiest and the best way to get our head around the fact that submission does not equal inferiority is, is to look to the God that we worship, actually. So we worship a triune God, is the word we, we use. Um, is Father, is Son, and his Holy Spirit. They are Co-equal is the word that we use in our belief statement when we talk about the Trinity. They're all God. They're all worthy of all praise and glory and honor. All the creator, all the sustainer, all sovereign. And yet Jesus says, over in John's gospel, I have come down from heaven not to do my will but the will of him who sent me. (coughs) Jesus was submissive to his father. Yet they are equals as God, do you see? His submission did not make him less than the father in value. Equals with distinct roles. Better still, uh, take a look at Jesus' relationship with his earthly parents, with Mary and Joseph. Let this blow your mind a little bit if you think that inferiority might imply that someone is less than someone. The Bible says very explicitly, he was submissive to them. Get your head around that. Were Mary and Joseph superior to Jesus? There's an easy answer to that question, right? No. No. They were not, of course not, but there, and, and now there is something else as well. A lot of introductory issues as we approach this passage. Something else we should see here before we get into it, uh, which is which is really important. Which is that uh, as much as the words of Ephesians five to six here um, are revolutionary and are controversial and are different today, they were just as revolutionary, just as different in Paul's day and in every age. These passages speak speak and they call us to something that shines in an otherworldly way um, there's a quote here I want to read to you because I thought she put it really well um, it's from uh, Gloria Furman, uh, one of the recommended books for the series actually she says this um, she says stick with me this is a long one it's a wordy one it's a really good one in ancient Greco-roman culture the normative household codes, so that's kind of like what we're looking at here, is a household code, uh, were associated with the government and politics with an eye toward practicality. For example, if you treated servants well, they would be productive and the nation would benefit. The emphasis was on the people under authority laying down their code of conduct for them. Christ's people, however, served the king who fulfilled the law of love keeping every one of his Father's commands on our behalf. Did it work? No, it didn't. Keeping every one of his Father's commands on our behalf and gave us a new heart and his spirit so that we could follow him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, John 14, 15. Owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, Romans thirteen eight for the whole law is fulfilled in in one word, you shall love your neighbour as yourself, Galatians 5.14. Christian household codes are modelled after Christ, by whose power we live accordingly. Unlike secular household codes, where those under authority are addressed, in Christ's household, those over others in authority are also instructed, This is radically subversive in view of the evil powers that hold the course of this world in sway where the strong, the manipulative and the abusive inherit the earth. Husbands, parents and masters must live according to the obligations upon them as well. Earthly productivity and efficiency are not so much in view here as are the sovereignty and justice of God. The creator is not partial to those he has placed in authority but all are accountable to him. The commands to love and to submit must remain together and interpret one another. Keep that there. The plain fact is that this passage has been abused at many times in history. Uh, The calls to submit have been twisted, have been Uh, misused many times throughout history, and to take a call to submit outside of the broader context of gospel-formed, loving leadership that surrounds it, breaks people. Not only that, it actually does violence to the Bible. And I object strongly to both of those things. And we all should. We have to see that this speaks both to wives and husbands. And it lays obligations on the both it speaks to children and parents it speaks to servants it speaks to workers and it speaks to masters and employers Uh, and it lays serious obligations on both sides of those equations do you see we can't approach it as a one-sided thing it's really important that we see that because so often people have grabbed this text and they've just gone for the wife bit Or they've just gone for the husband bit, or they've just gone for the kid bit, or they've not just gone for the parent bit, you know? And we have to take it together, because that's how God's Word is written. So, the first and longest relationship passage that we get is that Paul addresses marriage. uh, And he starts by calling us to a gospel-centred pattern in marriage. So first here, Paul speaks to the wives and what he says are probably the most controversial words of this entire letter, some of the most in the New Testament. He says, "'Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands.'" The biblical shape of marriage involves submission from a wife in reflection of the church's submission to christ it is it is irreconcilably breaking the text to say otherwise it makes no apology for this you might notice because it is a purposeful part of god's good design for our lives and for this world but the nature of this submission is not what we might imagine when we think of submission when we hear the word first we need to observe this is a explicitly voluntary submission that happens here it's motivated by the love of christ and by the love of her husband the church is not forced into submission to christ like a slave she chooses to follow him knowing his endless love for her and it is an easy choice to make knowing his love for her right paul says the wife is to submit as the church does to christ let's be clear there is nothing here that should lead a husband to command his wife to obey me those words blokes should never come out of your mouth That's, that, what, what that's called is domineering. And that's actually explicitly spoken against in the Bible. Uh, it's, it's, it's spoken against here in the way that he describes a husband. It's spoken against in 1 Peter in the way that he describes husbands and wives. Also, this isn't a call to micromanagerial marriage. Uh, marriage where the husband has to direct, have direct control over every single aspect of of the wife's life for this to be a faithful marriage. When it says that she is to submit in everything to her husband, what it's referring to, it doesn't mean she has to call him at the checkout to make sure this is the right cheese, you know? And like I joke, but like there are marriages like this. There are people who, who look to this passage and say, that's what that means. Wife, why didn't you ask me before you made that little tiny decision over here? And and that's that's an abominable thing. And that's not what's being described here. It means she desires for him to lead the direction of their marriage in the areas of their marriage. And of course, this is still submission out of reverence for Christ, like he said in verse 21, which means she doesn't follow him into sin. She stands up and says, no, no, I submit first to Christ and I will not go there. finally we have to see that this call for a wife to submit to her husband as the the church submits to christ it it, it falls into the context of what comes next it's envisaged in the context of what comes after the the call to husbands to love their wives before we hit that head on um there's just one more thing that i want to make really clear that this passage both parts of this passage, in no way allows a husband to be abusive towards his wife. And in no way encourages a church to cover that or to pretend that that's not happening. Um, What what we're not talking about there is you argue a bit and and you're having a a bit in your marriage where you struggle with each other. We have those. Married people, raise your hand if you've had those. Don't lie, come on. Um, No, but... For a husband to dominate his wife and to be violent towards his wife or to or to be harsh towards his wife is explicitly opposite to what we're going to have described here. It's, it's, it's against it. Genuine abuse, let's be real, has often flown under the radar. Um, and it's often been subtly or not so subtly even encouraged to do so in churches. Um, that, is a, that is a sad and heartbreaking reality. And it's heartbreaking reality because of what it, because of what it does to her, because of what it does to them, and because of how it reflects on the name of our Savior as well. Yeah, we just just the other week heard that sin needs to come out into the light. We don't bury it and pretend it doesn't exist. The call to wives to submit and husbands to love does not allow for abusive relationships. And 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 here's here's the, here's the thrust here: if you're a woman who sits in such a relationship, um, and 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 you're like, I just don't feel like I can talk to anyone, that can be a really quiet, a really dark, a really hard place because you feel isolated from that. I just want to be clear, you won't, f- you won't reach deaf ears at Gospel Church, especially in the leadership of Gospel Church. We'll talk to you about that. We'll hear you about that. And, and, and in the right circumstances, we'll help you to get out of that. That's, if you're, you've got questions for me or, or shoves for that, then, then feel free to come and have a chat to me about that afterwards. But That's that. Um, and so... The wife's part of the gospel-patterned marriage is that she reflects the church as it submits to Christ in his loving leadership of her. Now Paul moves on to the husband. And his call to us, fellas, is abundantly clear. Uh, And it is deep, and it is a serious calling. Paul gives us a way to live toward our wives, And he gives us a goal in living that way toward our wives. He says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the way is to look to the example of Jesus. Look to the example of Christ, his sacrifice for the church. And then to to replicate that mentality in the way that you are towards your wife. And he gives us the purpose. The purpose is Christ's purpose. And so our purpose is that he might sanctify her and make her holy. He wants her to flourish into the person that God created her to be. A reflection of God's image. A holy woman. So he lays himself down daily in everything without a view to his own gain. So that she might grow to be who God intended her to be. guys if if we want to be good godly husbands we have to look to jesus in that jesus who came down from all of the comfort all of the luxury all of the prowess of heaven who laid that aside for her jesus who lived every day in the small things and the big things for the sake of his bride, the church. Jesus, who suffered as a refugee in Egypt. Jesus, who suffered homelessness for her. Jesus, who suffered insults for her. Jesus, who suffered every step of the road to Jerusalem, knowing what was at the end of it, for her, intentionally putting himself in harm's way so that he might remove her from it. Jesus who chose to be spat on, humiliated and tortured for her. Jesus who chose to go to the cross for her. Being a Christ-like husband will cost you blood. Here's what Paul said. That's what Paul's saying here. It's a serious calling. It's not a light calling. It's not something that, you know, but I'm tired today, so I'm not called that today. No. We're called to follow the example of Christ who went on in love for her no matter what. Being a Christ-like husband will call you to humility when your urge is to express pride. We we must be familiar with that feeling of when you just want to get your back up and be right about something. Being like Christ calls us to humility. Being a Christ-like husband husband, means putting her first every time. Being a Christ-like husband means dying for her when you choose to let her have the sleep in as much as it means dying for her when you literally choose which one of you gets to live and which one gets to die. Being a Christ-like husband means you take chances to lavish love Upon her. Christ doesn't drip feed his church love. He pours it out on her. Being a Christ like husband means leading in marriage in the servant mold of the leadership of Christ. And that doesn't mean you're just a servant. It doesn't mean we call it leadership, but actually, you know, it's just your job to do all the jobs and do what she tells you. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thoroughly tired of the kind of, well, i better ask the boss version of marriage. Um, you should talk to your wife about things, by the way, but she's not the boss. It means that every step of your leading is for her sake. It's to be selfless leadership. Let me... I know you're going to hear me say this and you're going to be like, didn't you already do that? But let me get uncomfortably specific here. It's okay. I'm not asking. (laughs) This doesn't fit with the husband who seeks to lead from the back seat of his marriage. Who lets her make all the choices and then nitpicks them apart to to the nth degree. Guys, Jesus doesn't wait for his bride to tell him that she needs his help. Imagine how much trouble we would be in if that was the, the groom that Jesus is, right? We would be. I can't think of a polite word right now. Jesus gets in there and he gets things done to bless his bride. Let me, let me give a few specifics here. There, there's, there's no Bible verse. This is going to blow some people's minds. So take a breath. There is no Bible verse on housework. Okay, got a few people nervous there isn't there is no Bible verse on it what that means for us is that it's not just her responsibility to do the dishes let that wash over you if you disagree it's fine go to the Bible check Um, but if you respect the Word of God and you check and you find it to be correct, live in accordance with God's word. It is not just her responsibility to cook. It's not just her responsibility to sweep. These are, these are cultural norms. That's a cultural stereotype. Guess what? Non-biblical. Just a fact. Sorry if I'm destroying anyone here. No, I'm not. You want to ab- apply the biblical pattern of marriage to those sorts of things, what you would say is that the husband is called to servant leadership in every area of his marriage right because remember she's seeking to follow him in every area we just saw that and and that's hard to do it's hard to follow someone in an area of your marriage where you're doing the area of your marriage and he's on the couch you know if if you say oh come on it was a really hard day at work and she's just having to keep on doing the work that she does 24 7 Christ-like leadership looks like getting home and being willing to do the dishes without being told that you need to do the dishes. Christ-like leadership looks like realising it's been a hard day for her and trying to take more of her load of what she's doing to make it easier for her. Even if it's been a pretty ordinary day for you. Christ-like leadership doesn't look like leaving it all to her. That's how the world leads, right? Like quite self-evidently when you say it out loud. We're just nervous to do it because it means we have to wash the dishes. It's not how Christ leads. He leads by loving her and giving himself up for her, right? Let me put some practical legs on this idea if I haven't already gone quite deep enough there. Guys, if you work all day then for the hours that you were at work working, there should be no expectation upon you that you're doing housework. That's crazy. You're at work. You can't come home and wash the dishes. You're at work. See the practicality there, right? You're at work. You're loving your wife by laying yourself down and working to provide for her and for your family and to to show what Christ is like in that workplace, right? We'll get into a bit of that next week. When, when you get home, I thoroughly believe this. It's on both of you. She works. She does. She just doesn't get paid for it like you do. People don't tend to give her awards. It's on both of you. And you need to lead in that. Because you're called to Christ-like leadership. Like the Christ who got down and washed his disciples' feet. If you don't work or if, if neither of you work, um, it, it's on you both equally. It's pretty obvious when you say it, right? But the onus should be on you to lead in taking initiative in this. Now, now, like, let's recognise this is very different to how our culture does this, right? It's radically different. Second thoughts, Matt? No, no, I won't ask that. Um, Now if you, oh there's always one, uh, state of the words John, Um, if you take issue with that or with any of this, let me me encourage you genuinely head on over to the Bible and see what it says. If it still calls you to lay down your life for your wife, the call here and, and you go, I don't want to do that in this area the call here is extremely simple it's one of those repent and believe sort of moments look at what Christ is like towards his bride and 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 be like him and trust him to provide what you need to do it Um, if if you think that's not very manly recognize that you just called Jesus unmanly repent and believe If, if you want to talk about it, come, catch up with me. We'll have a coffee together. We can, we can talk this out. Um, I'll make it for you. Um, d- don't bring an argument of that's just too hard. She does it all the time. Are we in a culture anymore where I'm allowed to use the words man up? Yeah, let's go with yes. This, this doesn't fit with the husband who dominates her and rules the marriage for his own good. In fact, Paul reminds us actually, specifically in this passage, that domineering isn't for your own good in the end. He says that loving her is for your own good because she is your one flesh partner. So when you love her, you love yourself. What does he say there? He says, um, he who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Guys, there is much more joy in doing this Jesus' way. There is. So Christ listens to his church. You need to hear her. You need to invest time in hearing her Hearing her cannot be a purely opportunistic thing. You need to respect what she has to say. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that she leads in everything. But I'm saying that leadership doesn't look like just saying, I'm not going to listen, we're going to do this. There are some more subtle implications here. There's There's been a bit of a norm in church... Um, or churches that, that we will hold up a marriage as healthy and, and normal and biblical when the man grows in his um, view of Christ and his knowledge and his theology and, and, and the wife um, does an excellent load of dishes. Like that, that's been often held up as the great marriage, right the biblical marriage. Um, and, and she doesn't really grow in godliness. She doesn't really get to read the books or to grow in her theology or her knowledge because that's kind of a man's game is how it's been viewed. Christ brings his bride with him. There are few things more beautiful in this world than a woman who's got her head screwed on theologically and knows the glories of Christ and can express them. But now, okay, now, beyond the roles of husband and wife, I don't think I've ever had as much attention as I've had in this sermon. Um... Beyond the role specifically, there's some something significant here that we need to take away from this. Something, actually, the most significant thing about marriage is yet to be said. It's not about you. It's not about your marriage. Now, don't get me wrong, Paul is laying a pattern here, and I honestly believe it creates the healthiest most joyful most beautiful marriages possible but the the purpose here is more than creating a good marriage for you behind the gospel pattern for marriage there is a gospel purpose for marriage here in fact there is a a mystery here which paul states so blatantly so plainly so black and white that we might just pass over it, and many people have uh, for the simplicity of this overwhelmingly powerful thought, verse thirty-one. Here's what he does. Verse thirty-one quotes from Genesis chapter two, um, where where marriage began, right? Uh, where where it's written, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And we go well. Why does he quote that, right? Like like what's what's his purpose here? Is he is he is he trying to point out that this is how marriage has been since before the fall? Is that is that what he's going for there? Or is it that um, this pattern of marriage has been, is kind of, is, is a creational mandate? Is that what he's trying to express? And those things are true. It is pre-fall. Um, it is creational. But it's not what Paul's purpose is here. He tells us his purpose. Um, he tells us his reason for quoting Genesis. He says, this mystery is profound. What mystery? The mystery of the one flesh union of marriage, right? The mystery that two become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Here's the have you been listening quiz. Do you remember that this isn't the first mystery we've dealt with in Ephesians? Okay. If this is your first time at Gospel Church, you're exempt. Um, Yeah, this isn't the first one. The mystery, in fact, we've had two. First, we had back, way back in chapter one, right? We had the mystery that Christ is the fulfilment of all things. God is going to make, that all, God made all things with the purpose of Christ. That nothing finds its reason and its purpose outside of him in the whole cosmos. And, the, and then the mystery that God is bringing in, a church from every tribe, tongue and nation the Gentiles are coming in and through this he is displaying his wisdom to the heavenly powers to the whole creation mystery number two do you remember those are they familiar getting a few nods that's good do you see how those two mysteries like we've said are actually the same mystery because Christ is filling all things by filling his church He is reaching out into the creation through the redemption that he is working in her so what we've got essentially is that christ is the fulfillment and the purpose of the cosmos he is the fulfillment and the purpose of the church and now we discover another another level of zoom here on the microscope christ is the fulfillment and the purpose of marriage that most basic of human relationships Paul's making a big claim here and you won't get what your marriage is for until you understand this. Paul's not taking marriage and using it to express something similar to Jesus. It's the opposite. Paul's taking the one true marriage of Christ to his church and he's calling us to live in line with that in our lesser marriages. If you wanted to point to the real marriage, you point to the marriage of Jesus and the church. Because he says this is the purpose that has always been there for marriage. There is one true marriage. Which every other marriage exists to be an image of. Whether, whether we do it well or not. Like whether you're a good image or a marred image of it. That's what your marriage exists for. Christ loves his church and he gave himself up for her. God made marriage as an expression of the marriage between his son and the church and so every human marriage must find its purpose in expressing the reality of the one true marriage this is why your marriage exists john piper uh, wrote this he said uh, the highest meaning and the most ultimate purpose of marriage is to put the covenant relationship of christ and his church on display that is why marriage exists. If you're married, that's why you are married. If you hope to be, that should be your dream. Have you ever noticed even this connection that, you know, in Genesis 2, God puts Adam to sleep and takes from his body, his bride, and makes her from, her, from his side. And Christ goes down into the grave, into the sleep of death. And from his body and blood comes out the church, redeemed through him, brought in, made his bride through his body. What this means is that husbands, you don't just love your wives and lay yourself down for her because it's the right thing to do or because it'll tend towards a happier marriage. Uh, That's not what's being said here. You do it because in doing so you are displaying to the world, the mystery of God's wisdom, that Christ would die for his church. And through this, he would transform a multitude of men into servant leading husbands. What this means, wives, is that you don't just submit to your husband because it's the right thing to do or because it'll give you a better marriage. This is not ultimately a guide to a better marriage you do it because in doing so you are displaying to the world the mystery of God's plan hidden in ages past but revealed now in Christ Jesus and therefore through his church that a people are coming in and are submitting joyfully to the leadership of the one who lays down his life for his church your marriage along with the rest of your life is missionary is what this means it's marriage is intended to be lived in such a way that the decla- declares the gospel through living to a watching world it it is meant to create plausibility for the gospel do you see because a people who doubt the wisdom of coming and giving your life to Jesus, I don't know if I can trust that guy, I'm not sure what he's like, submitting seems like a really dirty idea to me, those people see a healthy marriage where the husband loves his wife and lays himself down for her as he leads her, and where a wife joyfully follows him because his love is easy to follow. And, and they see that, sub, that submission isn't vile, when it is to the one true husband, Christ, whom they are reflecting. They see you and in you, they see something of your savior. And in this final part of our passage, yes, there's a little bit more, the gospel-centered marriage is what Paul pictures then overflowing into gospel-centered parenting. Gospel-centered family life, if you will. And he doesn't go long on this, but what he says actually really, really matters. Um, first, he speaks to the kids. Um, Kiddos, I know you're all drawing. I know that we loosely encourage you to get distracted during the sermon, but here's just a moment to stop and listen, if you, if you can. I know that some of you are little enough that that's going to fall on deaf ears, and it's okay. Parents, don't stress. You can pass it on later. Paul calls you to obey your parents and to honour them. I may have just lost most of you just there, but I wanna say three things about that calling. First, the fact that Paul speaks directly to you guys here is really significant. This is a letter to the church, right? Not a letter to the whole city of Ephesus, this is a letter to the believers in Jesus in Ephesus. And Paul turns to the believing kids and he treats them as equal heirs in the gospel equal in salvation and therefore needing to be addressed. You guys are important. You guys are so important. The Bible doesn't leave you behind and it's not just for the grown-ups. Your faith, your gospel-centered living, your faithfulness in front of your friends, in front of your community is not less important than that of your parents or of the, the adults here. Second, you're called to obey your parents and to honour them, and that's serious, and it's going to frustrate you sometimes. You are already aware of this fact. The reason it frustrates you is the same reason it frustrates me when someone in authority over me calls me to do something and I need to obey that. It's because there's an old part of me that says, I'm right all of the time. There is. It's still there. I'm sorry, it still exists when you get older. There's an old part of you there. And know that when you obey your parents, you are following the example of Jesus. You're showing the world how Jesus is. Who set himself aside and he followed his earthly parents and was submissive to them, even though he's God, right? And let's, be, let's be real here. Like when, when I have that urge that says, you know, I don't want to follow what that person's telling me. I should go my way. I don't want to obey. Uh, and when you have that, Honestly, if we, if we observed it from the outside, hello Charlie, we would say that we're usually wrong. Jesus, Jesus is God and was God. <laughs> he wasn't wrong and yet he was submissive to his parents in righteousness. It didn't make him less significant than his parents. You're not less significant than them. It was being... Obedient to God's plan for you. Third, you're never called to obey them in disobeying God. Okay? It's actually okay for you guys to speak up about this to your parents, to other adults, to me. It's okay for us to address sin, for kids to address sin in their parents' lives. In fact, I I think it's probably meant to be normal. I am so blessed in my family when one of my kiddos says to me, Dad, was that right? (laughs) Don't get me wrong. I I don't feel blessed usually when that happens. Um, But but it is such a beautiful thing because they're learning to speak gospel to me even in the little ways. When they say, is that what Jesus is like? And I go, "Ah," lower the volume, calm it down. Remember Jesus, thank him for your kids. Don't get frustrated at them. They just pointed you back to him. It's a beautiful thing. You guys are a gift to your parents and to your church. You can speak up and you can still honor them in speaking up. I'm not saying be rude to them. I'm saying speak up respectfully, but clearly to them. And now finally, Paul speaks to fathers. Um, and, and, you know, he's just talked to us about the one flesh union of marriage. So there's something here for, for mothers and fathers. But honestly, guys, I think he has our number here in what he says. Uh, um, doesn't, doesn't he get us here? He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I got to repent here. In fact, I should have repented earlier in the sermon um, and said that the, the, the Christ-like husband isn't me. I have so much growth to do there. We have so much growing to do there. Please don't come out of this going, you know what, I need to put up a front of that because that's what ex- what's expected at Gospel Church. No, 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 go back to last week's message. We bring sin into the light and we grow to be like Christ as we apply the gospel to each other's lives. We, we're growing in this. It's okay to be open about the fact that we're not there yet. But I got to repent here though and say that the most natural thing for us dads and, and, and for me Included maybe in particular is to use loud and angry uh, to get things under control. to, 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 To get the situation how we want it to be. Am I the only person who relates to that? Men or kids who have seen their fathers or wives. We're called to better than that. We're called to patience. We're called to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If you wonder what that means, think about what we've seen about what the instruction of the Lord, what the words about Jesus are that we have looked at so far in this letter. He's talking about applying gospel truth to the lives of our kids as much as we apply it to each other. In that leading relationship of parenting, including discipline, including bringing them back on the path, We don't aim for behavioural modification. That's not the goal of godly parenting. We aim to hold out Christ to them and have them see him more clearly every time. When they struggle, holding out how Jesus relates to their struggles and is better than the things of this world. Hi Charlie, again. When siblings argue, holding out the love of Christ to them even as you hold them apart. When heartbreaks come, holding out the immovable joy and peace of the gospel that will keep them going. When, when big plans, when big dreams don't come about, as they get older especially, reminding them gently where their purpose is, where their identity is, is in Christ, even as you weep with them even as you mourn with them. When they succeed in those big dreams, reminding them that their identity should never be in the frail successes of this life, but in the one who shed his blood so that they would forever be sons and daughters of God. Reminding them of it even as you celebrate with them. So we need to be patient with them as Jesus is patient with us. We need to be gracious with them as he is with us. We need to discipline them patiently. Discipline isn't an excuse word for getting angry. Not harshly. Just like he does for us, right? Jesus doesn't whip his people and his children because he's angry and annoyed at them. He disciplines, disciplines them in love we need to call them to the truth that speaks against the lies that they're believing when they turn aside. Parenting is a challenging call, and it's it's such a beautiful blessing. I think all the parents here could probably echo that. And and, and this is what it looks like to be the gospel-formed family. To be a family in God's kingdom. I don't know about you, but I could do with some prayer over this. So why don't we pray? Jesus, I want to pray for myself and and for all who would echo this year, a prayer of repentance, that our marriages, our families do not always reflect what you are like. It's hard to submit. It's hard to lead in servant love. It's hard to obey. It's hard not to be harsh, but to lead them in the instruction of the Lord. We pray, Lord, for each family hearing this, that we would be bringing the times when we're insufficient, and when we do this wrong, we'd be bringing that into light and growing in you and applying her truth to our marriages and our parenting. We pray for the the husbands here that we would grow to be like Christ in loving leadership. We pray for the wives here that they would grow to be like the church as it follows Christ. We pray for the, the children here that they would obey and honour their parents. Thank you for them. We pray for the parents, and especially the fathers here, that we would lead them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and not provoke them to anger. Make us a people who reflect you in the world, Jesus. Shine brightly through your church. We pray it in your name. Amen.